Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, your creator and host. With me this week is my wife, Carol. Say hello, Carol. Hello there. Hello. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Good. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Why, thank you, Tyler. Tyler, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but I happen to know a few people who think and have told me your voice is dreamy. You, yeah, well, he knows he has a dreamy voice. They <laughs> I call just him want, the voice, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know, people do love your voice. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. I don't care what you had for lunch, just eat it. I've been waiting days to do that. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. From the late 1920s until after the Second World War, Lila and William Young ran the ideal maternity home and sanitarium for unwed mothers at East Chester, Nova Scotia. The pair, who have been referred to as baby farmers, sold healthy newborns to wealthy couples with the means to pay. They left the less viable infants to die of starvation. 
Estimates are as many as 400 to 600 babies may have died in their care. Many of the deceased infants were quietly buried in wooden butter boxes at various sites around the area, while it is believed that others may have been disposed of in the nearby Atlantic Ocean. You are listening to episode 157, The Ideal Maternity Home, Butterbox Babies. I think they named it wrong. This is not ideal. Yeah. This is very upsetting. I've only heard the term Butterbox Babies, and I did not kind of look into it further, so now I understand why. Uh, Much of the research for this episode comes from author Betty Cahill's 1992 book, Butterbox Babies, several news and magazine articles, and the website IdealMaternityHomeSurvivors.com, as well as Cahill's book and brief mentions in a few others. The story of the Butterbox Babies has also been made into a movie of the week of the same name, and recently a more fictionalized account of the story called The Child Remains, currently available on Amazon Prime. And we'll post some links to other things, including a link to the old movie of the week, so you can watch that for yourself. Uh, I've wanted to cover this story for a long time. It's been on my list of potential show topics for a few reasons. Since I first made my list three and a half years ago, there are reasons I've avoided it, though. And one is that this story involves children, infants, who have not yet had a chance to begin life before theirs was snuffed out by people who saw them merely as products to be sold and completely expendable, less than human. We have successfully steered away from many stories involving children, but this one begs to be told, especially as it took place only a 30-minute drive down Nova Scotia's Highway 103 from my hometown, Bridgewater. Oh, oh my gosh, just down the road. Yeah, it's very close. We've been there. We've been to Chester. Yeah, that's true. We have. Probably the main reason for my avoidance of this story is my own adoption. It's a deeply personal subject and something that has affected my life in a large way. In 1969, my birth mother, Diane, went to a home for unwed mothers run by the Salvation Army in Halifax, just 30 minutes more down the same highway. She spent the summer there, and I was born in early August between the Apollo 11 moon landing and Woodstock. I do not know to this day where I spent the first three months of my life, who I was with, or if I even got what I needed there. Hard to say, but you made it to the Browns. I made it. Got it. When I first read Betty Cahill's book, I was still dealing with a lot of those unanswered questions about my heritage, my birth family, and my own place in the world. So this book scared me a bit, and it took me to some dark what-ifs. And I'm ready to do this now. So what sort of people do this thing? Who were Lila and William Young? I'm just going to say it now. Garbage people. Garbage people. Born at Fox Point, Nova Scotia in 1899... Lila Gladys Coolin was the daughter of Salem and Bessie Coolin, who were devout Seventh-day Adventists. Salem was a fisherman like the rest of his family, catching tuna and mackerel. Bessie cared for the 11 children, three girls and eight boys, kept house, and ensured the family followed the tenets of the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. That's a lot of kids. That is a lot of kids. There was no Seventh-day Adventist church near Fox Point at the time, so according to Betty Cahill's book, quote, Bessie conducted services in her parlor, reading the Bible to her family and friends. Her lessons were clear and simple. Salvation was the goal. Clean living was the way. Smoking, drinking, and going to dances or movies were frowned on, as were clothes and jewelry that, quote, aroused the lust of the flesh. Sounds a little like Footloose. It is like Footloose. It's like Footloose in Chester, Nova Scotia. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Any angry dancing? 
I don't know if there was angry dancing. Chester is known for angry dancers. Maybe. It's interesting because smoking, drinking, and going to dances or movies was pretty much all I did. (laughs) Ooh, you naughty man going to movies. Yeah. Well, the smoking and drinking were Uh, really maybe naughty. Yeah. Lila Gladys was the eldest of all the cooling girls. Initially, after finishing her own schooling, Lila became a teacher and taught at the schoolhouse in Fox Point. She was 26 years old, almost an old maid by the standards of the time, when she met and fell in love with William Peach Young, 27, an Oregon-born, unordained Seventh-day Adventist minister and wannabe doctor who had grown up in Memramcook, New Brunswick. Ooh, that's a mouthful. It really is. I had to pronounce that a few times to myself. The pair courted briefly and married. When Lila became pregnant with their first child, William gave up his dreams of becoming a medical missionary and settled down with Lila and their sickly newborn son, son, William Jr. After the couple were finished school, they moved back to Nova Scotia and opened the Life and Health Sanitarium in East Chester. They obtained a loan from a local businessman and opened the sanitarium, which operated out of a four-bedroom cottage. It was more of a general practice at first, but eventually the focus turned to maternity. Thanks to Lila's skills as a midwife, the home became a popular place for local women to come and give birth. According to Cahill's book, less than a year after they began, their business became known as the Ideal Maternity Home and Sanitarium. William was the superintendent, and Lila was the director. So just anyone would go there if they wanted to. Yep. That's how they wanted to have their babies. Got it. Yeah, because I don't believe there were actual maternity hospitals at the time mm-hmm. that were focused on that, and so... This was their focus. Yeah. Although many married couples entrusted the youngs to assist with the births of their children, William and Lila's bread and butter were unwed mothers. Having a child out of wedlock at the time was disgraceful. Many young women and girls in trouble were sent away by their families to places like the Young's Ideal Maternity Home in the relatively rural and isolated South Shore of Nova Scotia. Families with money, wishing to keep their status untarnished to avoid the shame of a tainted daughter and her bastard child, told friends that their girls had gone off to, quote, finishing school or abroad for study rather than off giving birth somewhere. Yep. And I use the word bastard because that was the word they used at the time. And um, it is a word that we, people who are seen as, quote, illegitimate, have taken back. So if you want to find out more about why I am using that word, go to bastards.org because it's the bastard nation, essentially. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of those guys. Yep. And I am one. There you go. I would never call you that, though. No, I know. An illegitimate child, and I use illegitimate in quotes, was seen essentially as somehow subhuman, and according to a 2015 paper by Susan B. Boyd and Jennifer Flood at the Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia, many provinces did not keep proper records of children born outside marriage well into the 20th century. The province of Nova Scotia, where this story took place, did not keep printed records until the 1950s, making it impossible to know the full extent of what happened at the maternity home during its operation. Furthermore, and relevant to my own situation, it wasn't until 1995 that, quote, 
The Law Reform Commission of Nova Scotia recommended that the status of illegitimacy be abolished, yet Maintenance and Custody Act still retains its distinctions between legitimate and illegitimate children. Nova Scotia has still not abolished the concept of illegitimacy. Not. I didn't even know that was a thing. It is still a thing, and I am still an illegitimate child in Nova Scotia, even though I am now adopted by... Ted and Marion. Isn't that crazy? You can't shake it. No. Nope. You didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do any. I was born. Actually, probably no one did anything wrong. No. You know what I mean? It's crazy. These societal attitudes are what allowed the mass of monstrosities committed by Lila and William Young and their accomplices. According to Betty Cahill, the average age of the girls who came to Ideal was just 17. Many lacked not only means, but education as well. And it was relatively easy to manipulate and coerce these young women, some still children, embarrassed by their situation, into giving their child over to Lila and William to be rid of them. The pain of not knowing a child's fate has to be horrific. I know it was for my birth mom, and she was turning me over to trusted and well-known caretakers. Lila and William were just folks. Yeah, they're just, who knows? I just never thought of it. To grow their business... Lila and William advertised in papers all across North America. In Betty Cahill's book, she mentions a specific ad published in the Halifax Chronicle newspaper in the 1930s. The ad read, quote, Ideal maternity home, mother's refuge, also department for girls. No publicity infants, home and connection. Right for literature, East Chester, Nova Scotia. That's the ad? That's the ad. Okay. From Butterbox Babies, quote, The literature included brochures that promised to shield expectant mothers from gossip while recognizing that, quote, that, quote, one cannot lift another up by calling them down, end quote. I guess gossip is like the most important thing in this whole equation. With a steady stream of unwanted babies at their disposal, the Youngs quickly tapped into the lucrative North American adoption for cash market. Much of the baby trade was illegal even at the time. From the Canadian Children's Rights Council website, quote, The home was the source of babies for an illegal trade in infants between Canada and the United States. During this period, the laws in the U.S. forbid adoptions across religious backgrounds. There was an acute shortage of babies available for Jewish couples to adopt. The home would provide these desperate people, quote, black market adoptions, charging up to $10,000 for a baby, Many of the babies in the 1940s ended up in Jewish homes in New Jersey. At the time, they would charge the mothers $500 for their services. Also at this time, the average wage in the area was $8 a week. Many of the mothers could not afford to pay this sum and were forced to work at the home for up to 18 months to pay their bill. So they're indentured servants. Got it. So these young girls had to work for a long time to pay off this $500. And the $10,000 was a lot of money for people to pay for a child in the 40s. But we'll get into how this home got around the laws. Uh, okay. We'll get into that. Back to the quote. During World War II, business was booming because nearby Halifax was a major port serving as the point of de- departure for convoys crossing the North Atlantic to England. England was isolated from the rest of Europe by Nazis. Mm-hmm. So they needed supplies, and Halifax was sort of the jumping-off point to get the supplies to England. Ah. Back to the quote. 
Many of these ships never completed the journey. The sailors and merchant seamen would squeeze as much of life into their days in the port as they could, and many women were left as unmarried or widowed expectant mothers. The ideal maternity home offered almost the only place that could provide for these women and their children. From an article by Sue Artican on the MailArchive.com, quote, Elaborate contracts were signed by the unwed mothers, giving William the power of attorney and legal authority over their baby and their adoptions. If not signed within 14 days of the birth, they were charged an additional $30. By the time the girls left the home, their bills often exceeded $300 to $500. Oh, they just pressured them into signing off so they could have the babies and then that is correct. sell them. That is how they got to the expectant mothers. Mm-hmm. The home quickly outgrew its first building, requiring the youngs to build a mansion with the proceeds of their baby sales. It became the largest home of its kind in eastern Canada, with 54 bedrooms and 70 babies in the nursery. From a 1988 article in the Edmonton Journal, to show the building's purpose, Lila and William installed, quote, a gold-plated statue of a baby astride a globe over the west wing. So it was quite an ostentatious building. So it was supposed to be like a fancy place? Yeah. Meanwhile, it's so dirty. From Michael Newton's Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers, quote, Married women seeking refuge with the youngs paid an average of $75 each for delivery and two weeks of convalescence in the early days of the operation. But unwed mothers, frightened of scandal, faced a stiffer price. So these poor young girls were made to pay more than the people who were already married and could pay. Yeah. Because... They're easier to manipulate. And they wanted the babies. Yeah. The Youngs demanded an average of 100 or $200 in advance for room and board. Delivery of the infant and arranging subsequent adoptions, plus $12 for diapers and supplies, with an average $2 weekly maintenance fee for warehousing infants between delivery and adoption. This is an impossible situation. If you're in the kind of wrong side of things, you're not going to be able to kind of get out of this. No. And it's the depression as well. So people aren't working at all. Yeah. If a baby died at the home, the mother was charged $20 for a funeral performed by the Young's handyman at a standing rate of 50 cents per corpse with white pine butter boxes standing in for coffins. Saddest. Although the operation's reputation was generally good and many women had uncomplicated deliveries of healthy babies... There was the seamier side to the Young's business. Lila's credentials were a lie. She never went to school? She did go to school, but in an effort to make themselves seem like medical professionals and more palatable to a wealthier clientele, Lila began claiming she were an obstetrician and demanded to be called doctor. Oh. Her education as a midwife did give her the knowledge required to assist a woman in giving birth, but if there were complications, there were deaths. According to Michael Newton's An Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers, quote, between 1928 and 1935, Lila reported 148 births and 12 infant deaths at the home, a mortality rate of 8.1% that nearly tripled Nova Scotia's 3.1% average. Those were the ones she reported. Yeah. But others speculate that the numbers were much, much higher. I would imagine so, because why would she only report, why would she report them all? Who's yeah. keeping track of her? Nobody. In 1988, one of the former maternity patients at Ideal Maternity, 
Violet Eisenhower recalled the experience of giving birth to her first daughter and its painful aftermath in 1941. Southam News' Julian Beltrame wrote, quote, A married woman, Eisenhower checked into the ideal home, much like women today checks into the nearest hospital. Her naivete cost her a daughter and nearly her life. Quote, The baby came out feet first and I nearly died, Eisenhower, now 67, remembers. I was screaming for my doctor, but Lila wouldn't send for him. One of the mothers, the unwed mothers acting as helpers, wanted to go get my doctor, but Lila stopped her. Eisenhower recovered and nursed her healthy baby for 14 days, but the morning her husband came to take her home, Mrs. Young informed the couple that their baby girl had died the previous night of a fit. Quote, unquote. She showed us a butter box where she said my baby was, but she wouldn't open it. She said it had turned black. My husband fought her and my father fought her, but no matter what we said, she wouldn't open that box. I can't prove it, but I know my baby was sold. She would be 47 years old now, and I don't know where she is. What? How could you do that to someone? Well, poor Mrs. Eisenhower. She'd be 99 today if she's still living. Imagine the pain of living without closure for that many years, wondering if her baby girl were in that butter box, or perhaps Lila had lied and sold the baby to a wealthy family. If that were the case, that child now grown would be nearly 80 herself. And she's out there, oblivious, probably, that she was loved and wanted by Violet and her husband, her biological family. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. And we will take a break right here. Okay, thanks. And we're back. Uh, So what are your thoughts so far, Carol? It's just so disturbing, upsetting. People would do that. Just uh, kind of pretend they're doctors, they're medical people, and then just do this to other people. It's awful. Like, they're people. The sale of babies was big business for Lila and William Young and their not-so-ideal maternity home. Nova Scotia was and still is a lovely, low-cost vacation destination with an ideal summer climate and quaint views for young American couples seeking to get away from the hustle and bustle of the big cities. They came from New York, Chicago, Boston, every metropolis south of the border. Some visitors were childless couples thinking, why not kill two birds with one stone and go see William and Lila Young at the ideal maternity home and import a baby to bring home from vacation? This doesn't even sound real. This sounds like a made-up story. But it's not. No, people really did that. From Sue Artigan's article on MailArchive.com, quote, Many babies found new homes in the USA where couples were restricted from adopting due to age, state laws, etc. These grateful new parents were very generous and made large, generous contributions to the home out of gratitude. So this is how they got around those laws. Right. They weren't paying for a child. They were making a contribution. A donation a to donation the institution. To, uh, yes, exactly. Many of these children found good homes, but not in all cases legal. In many cases, these new parents were not aware that siblings, twins sometimes, may have been separated to provide them with their chosen child. Or that child may have been secretly taken away from its mother. In the mid-1940s, the pregnant girls coming to the home were generating revenues of about $60,000 annually for the youngs, but the real money was coming from the baby sales. Babies were sold for between $1,000 and $10,000 each. Remember, not really sold. 
It was a donation that the parents made. On top of that, donations were demanded and expected. So if you want to take your baby home, this one that we have for you, we expect this donation of X amount of dollars. Got it. This economics allowed for the rejected babies and those who died at least 10% of the total, 10%, and sales to the less lucrative local market. It is reasonable to estimate that half the babies, 700 or so, were sold for an average of about $5,000. So that equals $3.5 million. What? Yeah, in the 1940s. Oh my God. As you like to say, Carol, that's a really big check. Yes. It's easy to let greed blind you, and it seems the more money that enters the picture, the more gray and blurred the lines become, and before you know it, anything goes. I kind of had always hoped that people would know the difference between selling cars and selling people. But they don't. not. According to an article by Susan K. Livio, quote, Karen Balcom, a doctoral candidate at the History Department at Rutgers University studying the baby-selling trade between the United States and Canada, said the Youngs operated for years unimpeded by laws governing adoptions because there weren't any at the time. The institution is able to establish itself in a vacuum, Balcom said. Balcom continued, quote, The evidence I have seen is that Jewish parents were told there were Jewish babies at the home, and that was extremely unlikely to have been the case. Other families knew that they were getting non-Jewish babies, but were either comfortable enough or desperate enough to take them. Quite consciously, the Youngs realized that they had a specific market to serve. So... There are not a lot of Jewish people in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. So many of these babies weren't Jewish. And we had, uh, we have a friend who went through that same particular thing. He was adopted, Mm -hmm. grew up in a Jewish home. Turns out he's French Canadian. Yeah. So probably one of those similar situations, but later on because he was born in the sixties and not. Yeah. So this is still going on folks. This kind of thing. And I remember seeing your papers. They mentioned that your religion, I can't remember, was it? They said I was, that the religion was Christian. Yeah. Which was true, Mm -hmm. but I am a quarter Jewish. Yeah. So. But I just thought it was so unusual that they had to put that on the paper. But then I guess because that was like. That was the legal. That was the time. That's what they did at the time. That's right. In 1933, five years after it opened, the ideal maternity home had fallen afoul of the incoming liberal government in Nova Scotia, finally. So five years it's been operating, though. The rumors about baby sales and unexplained infant deaths swirled around the province, catching the attention of Dr. Frank Roy Davis, who was appointed to oversee public health. Davis was made aware of the goings-on at the home and began to scrutinize and demand closer oversight of the ideal maternity home. And although Lila and William resisted, Davis forced them to hire a public health care nurse into the home. For the entire 15 years of Davis' tenure in the office, he and the Youngs would clash many times. Thank goodness for Frank Roy Davis. Yeah, well, we'll see how actually ineffectual he was. Oh, no, he didn't help. He tried. I lo- yeah, okay, good. On the week before Christmas in 1935, Eva Margaret Neeforth, 27, and nearing her final month of pregnancy, 
arrived by horse-drawn sleigh at the ideal maternity home from her Seaforth home in nearby Halifax County. Her boyfriend, Walter, had made a down payment of $100 to Lila for Eva's care. Walter had not come by the cash easily and was struggling to make ends meet during the Depression. The money was worth it to Walter, though. He wanted to be rid of the child, determined that Eva should give up her baby for adoption. Eva wanted to marry him, but Walter blew her off, caring more about drinking and gambling. There were even rumors he was already married to another woman. The ideal maternity home, he thought, might be the best way to be rid of his problems. From Betty Cahill's book, Butterbox Babies, quote, He left East Chester that same night. Soon afterward, Eva became ill. For six weeks, she lay on a cot in a small room, alone much of the time. A letter to Walter on January 25, 1936, written in blue crayon, revealed her discomfort and that the birth was not far off. Eva wrote, quote, As I picked up the paper, to my surprise, to see that your mother has passed away, I cannot believe it is just like a dream to me. I hope you had gone down for the funeral. How I would have loved to see her. I never thought that was the last goodbye when she left that morning to go to Seaforth. Thought I would see her in the summer. Death surely can take you quick. It's God's will and thy will be done. I am not feeling so good. It takes me in the back every once in a while. I think it will soon come on now. I hope the Lord will help me through in the hour of need. With love from your little girl, EMN, I hope to be home with you soon. Lots of X's. God bless you. This poor girl. This poor person. On January 28th, only three days after sending her last letter to Walter, Eva was in the throes of an extremely painful labor, complicated by the abdominal infection ravaging her already weakened system. Eva's baby was born that night. It's unclear whether the baby was stillborn or dead within hours of coming into the world. Eva's infection flared up dangerously. Fearing for the young woman's life, Lila had William write a letter to her parents, Rufus and Edith, back home. The letter, as published in Betty Cahill's book, read, quote, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Neeforth, We regret to tell you that your daughter Eva came to this institution needing professional institutional care. Her case is, however, very serious and we fear she will not live very long. We would therefore urge that if you wish to see her alive, that you come at your first opportunity. It seems that you live a long distance from either a telephone or telegraph station as we tried to get in touch with you, so am sending this sad news by letter, the first train out from here, regretting keenly to have to convey such a message to you and hoping you can come shortly. I am faithfully yours, Dr. William P. Young, Superintendent. P.S. We wish to tell you that she received the utmost care while here and shall continue to work untiringly for her life. Are they just trying to get money from them? Eva's parents wired Walter to tell him about Eva's situation. He raced to the home to see her. Eva was barely conscious and very ill when he arrived. Walter begged for William to call a doctor from the nearby village of Chester, but William claimed to have the situation in hand. He told Walter that he was a doctor. It's unclear what a chiropractor would do to be able to help a woman who desperately required antibiotics to save her life. Oh, man. Dejected, Walter turned to leave, but did not make it out the door before he was billed by the Youngs. He had to pay $20 for the butter box for his son's burial and another $5 for the death shroud. I knew they were trying to get something from him like that. 
After Walter left, Eva's situation became much more grave and she began to hemorrhage. On February 1st, Lila got the young woman into the car and began driving quickly to the hospital in Halifax, 50 kilometers away. But it was too late. Eva bled to death on the way. Lila turned the car around and brought Eva's body back to the maternity home and placed her in the garage with the help of the home's handyman, Aubrey Murphy. It wasn't until February 19th, 18 days after their daughter's death, that Eva's parents learned of her passing, and only after inquiring about it themselves. Lila Young then sent a letter of condolences to inform them of the death of their daughter with texts that coldly attempted to absolve the ideal maternity home of any responsibility in Eva's death. From Betty Cahill's book, Lila Young's letter read, quote, It is with deepest sympathy that I write these lines in answer to your nice letter I received this morning, and we hasten to send you the information you desire. Your daughter entered this institution quite early before her confinement in order that she might be constantly under skilled attention and to avoid traveling in the heart of winter in her condition. She was far from well some time before her baby was born and repeatedly told of a feeling that she would never live through this experience. Her baby was dead before birth due to her own physical condition. I see they're blaming her for all this. The letter continues. Now this institution has to its credit a most wonderful record in the eight years in the eight years it has been established. During that long period of time, there have been no adult deaths in it, and your daughter's death occurred on the eve of its eighth birthday. When you stop to consider that, during the past two years alone, a baby has been born here on an average of every nine days, it shows carefulness and skill on the part of its staff. Our efforts to save your daughter were untiring, and in the extreme, it resulted in a great loss of sleep. She called to her boyfriend, Walter, who arrived here early enough to be recognized by her, and we tried to get you folks by telephone and telegraph, but could not get the message to you, so wrote a letter and motored adjourning town where there is an afternoon mail, but no reply has been received. After her baby was born, while she was perfectly conscious, your daughter delivered to this institution a written statement regarding her condition in which she said, We had done all for her that could be done. Allow me to assure you of our sympathy in your late bereavement and that your daughter received the tenderest care possible. End quote. It's just shocking that they would put that. I just, why would they explain that? It's, I don't, I hate them. They're trying to cover their butts and then just writing this letter like also, oh, and your daughter died, but it's not our fault. And don't uh, make a thing of it because it's our eighth birthday today of this nightmare of a hospital we're running. Yeah. Sorry, sanitarium. That whole letter was disgusting. It's the worst. Yeah. And the poor parents. Yeah. Like. And the poor everyone. And you learn this by letter. Yeah. Like there's nothing that can be done. Lila's brother raced to claim Eva's body and that of her deceased newborn. As Eva was unclean in the eyes of the church, she was unable to be buried in the family plot, but was relegated to the back of the Anglican cemetery in Seaforth. Her son was buried with her in her arms. (sighs) Isn't this horrendous? It's just terrible. It's just people doing mean things to each other. hate it. After a quick investigation, Lila and William were arrested and charged with two counts of manslaughter in the deaths of Eva and baby Neeforth. From Lee Meller's book, Cold North Killers, quote, 
It was believed they perished from a combination of negligence and poor sanitation at the home. During their trial, provincial pathologist Dr. Ralph Smith testified that he'd performed autopsies on the victims and suspected Eva had contracted peritonitis from unsterilized obstetric instruments. The infection had slowly spread from her uterus to her perineum, causing abscesses that ruptured, resulting in a torturous death. Improper use of forceps on her newborn had loosened the scalp and broken off the occipital bone. The Youngs took the stand to deny the charges, and in May 1936, they were acquitted. No! They got away with it. Undeterred by homicide charges, Lila and William carried on, as did the ideal maternity home. They'd been found not guilty after all. Yep. By 1939, the home had paid for itself, and Lila and William were able to purchase a home of their own. It was a beautiful three-story house with nine bedrooms. It had three bathrooms, a den, a large dining room, a living room, and a kitchen. The young spent thousands of dollars on lavish things. There were several cars, and they bought more land and other luxuries. Yep, it was a really big check. The reputation of the home was tarnished, nonetheless, as were those of Gladys and William. The Seventh-day Adventist Church also disavowed them and kicked them out as more complaints and rumors about the goings-on ideal maternity home continued. Right, okay. So it's starting to catch up with them. I mean, it's taking so long, but people are starting to clue in. Nine babies a day are being born at this place. Unsanitary conditions. Who knows how many have died? William and Lila were trying to cover their butts, though. And this is when William came up with his uh, power of attorney waiver. According to Lee Miller's book, now William was including a waiver with the power of attorney, clearing the ideal maternity home of all legal culpability resulting in a child's death. For their own part, the Nova Scotia government passed the Maternity Boarding House Act in April of 1940 as a first step in the battle against baby farming. So... This ideal maternity home was driving legal action by the province to enact laws to stop them from doing what they were doing. Yeah. The quote continues. The Youngs were now required to keep records of patients' names, ages, and addresses that would be subject to review by the Director of Child Welfare. It became illegal to advertise child adoption services, though they flagrantly violated this. Maternity homes were obliged to submit to routine inspections without prior warning, and the director of child welfare had to be informed of any institutional deaths within 24 hours. But, of course, they didn't do any of those things that they were required to do. Yeah, if it's not enforced, then... Yeah. Even with the bad press and increasingly intense government scrutiny, the business continued to grow. By 1943, there were 70 infants in the ideal maternity home on any given day. 70. What? It was not until 1945 that the Nova Scotia public health officials discovered their first real evidence of neglect at the home through a surprise inspection. From Michael Newton's book, An Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers, quote, Inspectors reported squalid conditions, swarming flies, and filthy bedding some infants weighing 50% of the normal for their age. Lila fired back with charges of harassment, but her time was running out. A new amendment to the Maternity Boarding House Act of 1940 broadened licensing requirements to incorporated companies, and the Young's license application was swiftly rejected. Ideal Maternity ordered to shut down in November of 1945. Oh! 
Wow. But they didn't shut down. Oh. It was not that simple to close a multi-million dollar business, of course. And the Youngs continued to operate without a license while their case was on appeal. Right. U.S. immigration officers joined the chorus of complaints in early 1945, citing evidence that Lila had smuggled black market babies into the States. In March, the Youngs were arraigned on eight counts, including violation of the Maternity Boarding House Act and practicing medicine without a license. But their conviction on three counts on March 27th resulted in a piddling fine of $150. Why and how? Like, why do they keep get, just sliding by? That's a great question. Because these babies are not humans. But someone is to, starting to enforce this. So to the system. They're illegitimate. It doesn't matter. So they just keep getting just kind of slaps it's on the like wrist. It's like institutional racism. It's the same kind of idea. The authorities kept after the couple in 1946. They were arrested by the RCMP and charged with and convicted of illegally selling babies to four American couples. Their fine was $428.90. Worth the trouble considering each of the babies had sold for $10,000. So the fine would be just considered like the cost of doing business at that point. That's right. The ideal maternity home finally shut down and William and Lila Young were bankrupt and debt-ridden. And this was in 1947. They sold off their property and moved to Quebec. The building, in the process of being remodeled as a resort hotel, burned down in 1962. And so the only thing there right now is a foundation. Good. William succumbed to cancer in 1967. Lila moved back to Nova Scotia and died from leukemia in 1969. Lila's gravestone bears the inscription, Until we meet again. Please, God, no. Yeah. Pass. Yeah, I am not looking forward to that meeting. Only after the Youngs were gone was the full extent of what went on at Ideal Maternity Home revealed. Presumably, hundreds of babies had died there. Some in childbirth, while others, the unadoptable, the deformed, or the racially mixed children, were starved to death on a meager diet of molasses. In an article by Tom McDougall of the Canadian Press, a local man recalled assisting with body disposal from the maternity home. McDougall wrote, quote, Glenn Shatford recalls being hired to help dig graves three or four times, but he never saw the babies in butter boxes. Sometimes, he added, the bodies would only be in cardboard boxes. The bodies would be collected for burial on Friday nights. So this was bodies they were collecting, not just one. Yeah. They had like a regular pickup on Friday nights. Shatford said, quote, they would bring them down here and make little butter boxes for them. And regardless of their religious affiliation or belief, they would say a little prayer for them. He said older children may have died, but all the ones he buried were newborns. Shatford recalls going back into the shed of the place once looking for a stick of dynamite for some odd job he had been assigned by the owners, probably like removing a stump or something. His leg bumped into a little baby's bathtub, knocking off the lid. There was a baby looking at me in the face. They were getting it ready to bring down on a Friday night. The little corpse seemed to be that of a newborn, he said. It appeared perfectly formed and was clean. Shatford said he understood other babies were buried on the grounds of the home before the plot back of the cemetery was used, but he knew nothing for sure. End quote. What a nightmare. Due to poor record-keeping... There are many adoptees and birth families out there still looking to reconnect. 
many of the survivors who were born at the home reunite regularly to share and commiserate. To learn more, you can check out www.idealmaternityhomesurvivors.com. Wow. So this is, that's it for this week's case. Yeah, that was a lot. Yeah, and it's, it's very, very sad. So upsetting. Also, I just think more and more I'm lucky to be born now and like my life now. Because, yeah, the good old days I don't think is a real thing in a lot of ways. Yeah, there there were no good old days. No, I don't think so. No. A lot of people in uh, Nova Scotia, as happens in small towns, really don't like that their history includes this. Of course, yeah, it's of embarrassing. Course. Yeah. And they think it reflects poorly on them. But it doesn't. I look at it like that does, to me, does not put a stain on Chester in the area. The only stain belongs on uh, William and Lila. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. They took advantage of a situation where it's unwinnable for anybody involved, except yeah. for them. Exactly. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I'm fine. I'm glad we're finally done that one. That one has was emotionally hard for me to write because of my connection to adoption and that kind of stuff. So... Glad we're past it, but a lot of people have requested it. So there it is. Yeah. it's. I'm glad that you included that link for um, the ideal maternity home survivors. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, people are, yeah, they need to talk about it and yeah. sort things out, get some healing. So I'm glad that that's out there for them. And again, there's that also if you are an adopted person and want to, learn from other adopted folks how they cope there's that bastards.org as well mm -hmm. which is is yeah. quite a good site so have they been around for a long time they have um i first joined it when the internet was brand new i feel like it's vaguely coming back to me now that you were on a website or something yeah. there was back when we first got there together. was can adopt that was the yep. other one. Mm -hmm. And then there was this one. And it was, Canada was more focused on looking for a reunion. Yeah. Um, I'll also include a link to Nova Scotia adoption uh, reunion information yeah. in our show notes. Because you've gone through that whole process. I have. And what a process that was. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. But it was a, definitely a great process to go through because now yeah. I have two moms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yep. Well, let's move on and we will look at some voicemails because I want to hear from some folks and I think some people left us some voicemails. <laughs> will we look at them or listen to them? <laughs> he said, look at voicemails. Are you one of those people who send me an email to correct me? Dear Mike Brown, Dear you Mike Brown. said there and you meant there. <laughs> yeah. You said there and you meant there. Or you said your and you meant your. your. And you know what, people? You don't know how <laughs> I've written know. that. I wrote it correctly. I wrote it correctly. Dear sir. Yeah. This sir slash madam. So if you, yeah, if you have the urge to send me an email like that, <laughs> just don't. Because send I, it to me because I'll just delete it. Oh, what do we call it? We file it under G. I file it under G for garbage. Gaga. Garbage. All right. Or print it out and then just throw it in the garbage. Yeah, print it out and then <laughs> I'll print it out and take a shit on it. <laughs> Let me file this away for you. <laughs> yeah. So let's listen to some voicemails. If you want to uh, leave us one, you can do so at a 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. And if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. And so here is the excellent voicemail that we had left this week. 
<laughs> Sorry, your guys' uh, message made me laugh. Um, my name is Alexa. I am 24 years old, and I live in Toronto, Nova Scotia right now. I grew up in Minto, New Brunswick, and you guys were the only podcast that I've ever heard to cover the Minto murders of Fred and Bern- or Fred Fulton and Bernard DeCary. Um I just wanted to tell you a little bit about that day. I was uh, nine years old, and me and my two sisters and my neighbors were playing outside, and it happened about two minutes from my house. Um, We were playing outside, and all of a sudden we see a helicopter fly over very, very low, and the only helicopters that ever flew over the house were ones looking for dope, and this one looked very different. Um, And then my mom came out yelling, telling us to come inside because they had found out that somebody had been murdered. Um, But... Anyway, that day, I've always been a scaredy cat, and that night I made my two sisters sleep in my bed with me, and I made the youngest one, who's always been the bravest one, sleep closest to the window. So if the murderer came in through the window, they would uh, get her first. She was five years old at the time. I was nine, and my middle sister was seven, and she was sleeping between us. Um, But mostly the reason I called in is my little sister, Olivia. She is 20 years old now, and she has just been accepted to the Atlantic Police Academy in PEI. And she's actually leaving to go there on uh, on Monday. She's going to be gone for six months if COVID doesn't open up and the Atlantic bubble doesn't open back up. Um, but I just wanted to call in and hopefully you can put this on and then just tell her uh, good luck and I love her and I'm super proud of her and I'm crying a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I love you guys' podcast and uh, I look forward to keep listening. Thanks. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. I'm glad she survived. Your little sister went, and now she's onward. And I um, have a little sister that's a cop as well. So cool. Yeah, it's not funny. That is cool. Thank you for calling. Yeah, and uh, we had a few other voicemails, but we're not going to play those. Whew. There's there's a few reasons that we're not going to play them. All right, it's time for Patreon. Let's do it. All right. So first up, from Victoria, British Columbia. Delightful. We have Kiara Weavers. Kiara is from Victoria. I like Victoria. It's a very nice city. Yeah. Just across the water there. Mm-hmm. And what does Kiara do in Victoria? She's a pet food tester. She tests pet food. It's true. She's the connoisseur of pet food. So she works with the pet food companies and determines which is suitable and tastiest for our beloved pets. Very nice. Dogs and cats and bunnies, so which I, are vegetarians, mostly lettuce. I know. I have a story about pet food. I think it was <laughs> uh, my uncle. I don't know if I'm conflating it with Donald Sutherland, but I think it was my uncle that they gave uh, <laughs> dog food sandwiches to one time when he was drunk and he quite enjoyed them. I have heard people doing that, yeah. but... Uh, Kayla does not approve of that. There you go. There you go. This is not to be messed with. So next up, from Seattle, Washington, (gasps) probably the city in the United States that we are most familiar with because it's the closest, we have Julie Sentkowski. Julie. Thank you, Julie. And Julie is? What does Julie do in Seattle, Washington? In Seattle, she's a paper towel sniffer. She sniffs paper towel. Yes, it's an actual job. (laughs) No, (laughs) nobody wants that job. That's a biohazard, mister. That's a biohazard Don't you know anything about (laughs) paper towel sniffing? (laughs) Yeah. So she makes sure that it's actually 
scent-free before it goes out to market. Wow. I know. She has a very fine sense of smell. There's only like seven other people in the whole world with the same sense of smell as her. Well, there you go. Yeah. It's very lucrative, pays well, but it's very demanding as well. (sighs) Paper towel sniffer. It's a thing. Well, someone's got to do it. Thank you, Julie. Next we have from Parts Unknown. Parts Unknown? Bethan Cole. Bethan. Well, where's Bethan from, first up? From Boston. Exactly. Bethan's from Boston. Bethan's from Boston. Okay. And then what does Bethan do in Boston? Boston. Bethan is a line stander. A line stander. And what does a line stander do? When someone who can't take time off work to stand in line for certain tickets for certain events, Bethan steps in for them. Thank you, Bethan. Bethan, thank you for your service. And hopefully we're pronouncing your name correctly. I hope so, too. And this is lucrative. Also lucrative. There you go. Little known. Lucrative. We get no donut love this week, but that's fine. Hey, it happens. Times times are tough. It's the middle of the pandemic. They have other things to think of than donuts. uh, Giving Mike and Carol some donuts, some dark poutine donuts. But It's okay. uh, We we appreciate what you have done, folks. Uh, Okay, well, anyway, I'll just go do this. Thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to support Dark Poutine, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. I know I have to update it. Please... Take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. More importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, bye, bye. Bing bong bing. Bing bong bing. Bye, everybody. Now I want a xylophone. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep 
of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.